I'm Dan Kendall, and you're listening to Digital Health Today, Asia Pacific Edition. Did you know that this is just one of the many shows that we create? In fact, from original podcasts like this one, to patient and professional educational content, to digital marketing, and even podcast advertising, we do a lot more than simply host conversations. We're mission-based media. Visit our website to learn more at missionbasedmedia.com. Welcome to Digital Health Today, Asia Pacific Edition, your go-to podcast to learn about the transformation of healthcare in a region with over 4.5 billion people across more than 40 countries. I'm your host, Tony Estrella. Across Asia Pacific, one persistent challenge is the digital readiness of a health system. In other words, some health systems, or even communities or cities within a given health system, are more ready for health tech than others. The ones that are most prepared have significant adoption of technology, data standards, and processes which embed tech-based solutions into healthcare. Japan has a long history of technology innovations, from organizations such as Sony, Nintendo, NTT, Canon, and Fujitsu. These include the portable Walkman, laptops, and LCD screens. But in healthcare, Japan also provides us a case study in how difficult it can be for a health system to adopt technology that enables change. Joining me today is Shigeto Miyamoto, head of digital marketing at Bristol-Myers Squibb in Japan and an evangelist for change. Throughout his career, he pursues ways to unlock better solutions for people in healthcare through technology. Let's get started. Shige, welcome to the show. Hey, Tony. Thank you for having me. Great speaking with you again. It's been a while since we worked together at MetLife. And uh, with that experience and now with BMS, you've worked in insurance and in pharma And you've really been able to immerse yourself in the challenges of what it means to bring data and technology together to enable digital health. So very excited to speak with you today. Likewise. So first, for our audience, can you tell us more about your background in digital? How did you decide to embark on a focus for technology and data in your career? I started my career in a digital NEC at Japan, the huge IT company. And then I moved to the American-based Japanese IT company. And then since then, I've been working in uh, IT infrastructure, software, security companies. Then I moved to the consultants and also met with the insurance company. So moving to the client side, and then I find uh, the, my mission in uh, helping people to have a digitalization or benefit of the digital, unlocking the constraint or limitation. And then your role at BMS now, you focus on digital marketing? Yes. I mean, doing a promotion, commercialization, but also working with the medical communication as well. So both the promotion and more education or how we could help transforming the patient's lives. Okay, great. That's very helpful. So the main topic of our conversation today is what are the challenges for digital health in a country and in an environment where there's not full spread or widespread use of digital technology and data, and there's still a lot that's maybe paper-based as compared to other countries. And it's actually somewhat of a surprising fact, given how much Japan over the last few decades has been a leader in consumer technology through companies like Sony and Nintendo and others. It's been 20 years since Japan announced the plan to go digital. There's been various initiatives that recognize 
that a paper-driven culture is going to be a barrier towards being able to unlock the benefit of having technology be able to service and transform industries. This is broader than healthcare. And if we look at the results of that, there's been a lot of start-stop initiatives and even at the policy level effectiveness. And you know, a couple of data points I came across is that if we look at how where Japan stands today, it's probably still only about less than 15% of all administrative work is transacted online, according to the Japan Research Institute. So that's not very high. Let's start there. What are your comments as to both in your role at BMS, but also just as a Japanese citizen and the level of paper-based interactions that you still have to deal with in healthcare? Can you share a story or two around that? Yeah, uh, totally. So uh, first of all, our Japanese society is a, is a very digitalized uh, society. Well, we are good at digital or IT. You know, we, we invented the game computing, the many, you know, IT services, you know, NEC, Fujitsu, Sony, uh, you name it. But with the COVID-19 situation started, it turns us that we realize that we're not so much digitalized society. So like you said, we still depend on uh, the paperwork uh, lots and uh, every municipal has a different uh, process and systems. Yes, we still depend on the paperwork and many inefficiency. And the government, new administration started accelerating this digitalization. So we started stopping the stamps, which is uh, we call hanko in Japanese. We use it as a signature. And to build on that for our audience, it, this is literally a physical stamp where you put ink on it and then you put it on paper. Yeah. Anybody could use this uncle stamp in any paper, but that's our historical habit. And the bank uh, still requires those stamps instead of their signature. But this important thing is uh, in this COVID-19 made us realize as to how far or how late uh, we are in some parts. And what's an example of where Japan is learning to become more innovative within healthcare? So if you think about the, the CTR, the appliance, we have a really good one, Canon. Fuji film, they have really good MRI, Kodak, and we have many good manufacturers. But when it comes to the more health tech uh, software services, I think most of them are quite uh, following the US trend. We do have the new services or platform from a startup company in Japan, but uh, we tend to trace the US trend. So uh, now in the industry, we started using the term beyond the pill or DTX, so digital therapeutics. I think FDA in the U.S. approved many healthcare programs as a DTX or beyond the pill. But in Japan, as far as I know, there has been only one PMDA, which is the equivalent to the FDA authorization in Japan, approved one software as a DTX. So uh, PMDA and the government trying to change it, you know, accelerating the speed and uh, creating some sandbox but still, we have some gaps between those uh, approval process and also the innovation from the bottom up. I've been talking with some officers in the government. They want to accelerate uh, the healthcare as an industry. And they have the sandbox system, but I think it's not really well known yet. And not so many people use it yet. So, so there's a reality and what the government wants to do. Let's move into a different topic now. Smartphones versus feature phones and the overall use of apps within Japan. I remember back in 2018, I saw numerous data reports that showed 
that because of the number of centenarians and the size of the silver generation in Japan, the growth of feature phones, which are the early generation of mobiles like flip phones, was still meaningful. This meant that not everybody in the population could use a digital health app because of the limitations of the device they carried with them. Can you comment on the current trends today? I think you made a good point. Yes, we have a feature phone, it's like a, you know, old generation type of the phone, but it has met the customer's needs, which is just making a phone call and then send a text. That's two things uh, was the minimum essential, what the people want from the phones. So uh, as long as it's met the needs, yes, it, it's gross and it's still people want to use it. However, uh, younger generation, of course, they don't have an iPhone or Android to play the game or they use a different application. And in Japan, in these five years, it's close SNS communication called Line. So that's equivalent to the, the WeChat in China and WhatsApp in the US. You know, everyone using it, right? So right now, I think it, I would refrain from the exact stats, but almost 80% of the population use the line and 65% people use every day as a, as a daily active user. So uh, I'll give you an example. My dad, and he's been using the, the feature phone for long and I from time to time, I suggested the new smartphone and you could just use for many things. You could check your the weather report or the route calls to the, your golf course or you know, monitor your walking, but he wasn't interested in it. But my son or my nephews, he started using this line for the communication. Of course, my dad wants to talk with them in a not only phone call or different way. So if the, their loved one started using the specific application, it's easy to break them, break the, the old generation, change their behavior. So it's only one good incentive we have it. Then it just it's not that hard to change their perception or behavior. So that's what we learned. And then this COVID-19 actually, again, accelerated this behavior. So uh, I would see the, well, not only the smartphone, but it's people's behavior would change or adapt, starting adapting the, the new way, new normal technology or uh, process. So uh, I think we are really in an interesting time of the turnover. Yeah, marvelous. I think while COVID and the pandemic has been a challenge for all of us, you know, consistently from country to country, this acceleration of adoption on the individual side of using smartphones, using more healthcare apps, creating an expectation where a digital interaction is now the norm has certainly been a huge boost. And I'm glad to see that's also happening in Japan. I know that telemedicine, for example, has also increased usage in Japan. Can you comment, your father's one good example, but just broadly as well, what's the mindset of people now when it comes to embracing telemedicine and other interactions with their doctor versus how they felt before the pandemic? It's always a trade-off relationship. So uh, it's convenient, but uh, still people are skeptical about the uh, readiness or uh, reliance. Telemedication, uh, you know, under the COVID-19, government started to unlock uh, a lot of the conditions. Before COVID, it was only the first time that you have to go to see the doctor and get a diagnosis. And from the second time, you could use the telediagnosis or video conference uh, just to check out the, the, your progress. And then back then, this was only uh, anti-smoking and only a few things. But now, because it's possible, we want to give a space in the hospital for the those who need in the treatment. So uh, I think it, we're just picking up, but it's a few, if I compare with the U.S. or Europe or even Singapore, I think we are still uh, behind in, in terms of the 
telemedication adaptation. And there's two sides to this conversation, right? There's the behavior of individuals and how they build trust in new channels for communication with clinicians. The other side of that is clinicians and doctors and their willingness and readiness to embrace change. What's the mindset, broad question, and you know, if you want to go both get the generalization, but also any specific examples of providers and their willingness to say, I see the benefits, I see the, how this helps my patients, I'll change, versus saying, I still prefer doing it the way I've always done. As a marketer, I've done a lot of research, survey, depth interview, ethnography, and I most often at the founder, doctors are eager to help the patients through those technologies. But still, if there's a risk, they have to choose a more secure way because we're not talking about the stats. We're talking about individual healthcare or people's lives. So, of course, they want to make sure that they are taking it the best way. So, there is a hesitation to use a new technology when it comes to the individual. So, uh, PHL or EHL, the personal health record or electrical, still in Japan, uh, we are, we've been debating with the convenience and again in a security. So it's always trade-off situation. And then we, I think every hospital and municipals have a different data system or data archive uh, process. So PACs are there, or PHL data there, and the EHL and the other data are available there. So we call as a whole the real world data, but it's not really usable yet, not really good for analytics, but also it's not available for the telemedication either. So from the doctor's point of view, when I diagnose you or when I see you, I need to have as much as information as I could to have a, the best diagnosis. But it, the data is not available. It's everywhere. You know, it's not centralized. So uh, the only uh, data or only information that I can trust is just uh, in front of me right away. So with this reason, I think it is doctors still see the more benefit to see the patient face-to-face and ask them around their past uh, historical data or their medical history, you know, so on and so forth. So uh, there's a barrier, and then it's always straight-off situation. Still, we are in the dilemma. No, thanks for that clarification. You know, just to recap what we've talked about so far and kind of look at a like a checklist of the level of readiness for Japan and for digital healthcare. So smartphones more widely adopted as a result of the pandemic. Consumer behavior is opening up to using smartphones to be able to engage with digital health. Still some resistance from people to switch over completely. So Work in progress. If we look at the interaction with providers and trust, trust is building and providers would like to move forward, but there's still many barriers to work through. So also work in progress. If we look to data systems, you mentioned EMRs for hospitals. They're being implemented, still fragmented. I think that also then leads to data sets and you know how the readiness of those data sets are being used. One surprising fact for me as we now shift the conversation more to back-end readiness, the Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare um, has actually been pretty open about embracing real-world evidence and the use of real-world evidence to help support and track how effective medications are used in their safety and efficacy in Japan. And that's actually been a really big positive. One fact that surprised me was there's actually a national claims database in Japan that covers pretty much the entire population. 
And that actually is significantly bigger than, for reference, the claims database in the US, which only covers about roughly half the population. So I put that as a one check mark that's a big positive for Japan. But you brought up a really interesting point that I want to go in deeper, right? So there's various sets of data. How ready is it to be used? And but used by, let me give you two separate use cases. One is by physicians directly, but also by technology systems, which take artificial intelligence and how it can bring information together. How would you rate the readiness of the data right now in those two use cases? So data we're talking about is two layers. One is just a nationwide level. So under business, there's a second layer, which is to stay at the municipal level. It's always just a... The, the issue between these two layers and in a sense that uh, just data is still fragmented. And then at the end of the day, it's just uh, this uh, debate or idea will come to the one point. Who owns this uh, patient's data? Who is uh, the actual owner? What's the ownership of this uh, PHR or health record? Some say this is patient individual. Patient individual has a data, so if they want to move around or everywhere they go, this needs to be available because it's just the patient's individual data, personal data, you know, should be owned by those, those individuals. Other arguments say this, it can be shared so as a big data or shared medical data so that physicians or clinician or even a healthcare provider like health state companies can utilize and then provide better service. So as long as this is just to come to the more mutual beneficial, I think it could be accepted. But still, there's a fear of the big brother idea that we are monitored by the by someone uh, above. And then uh, we, you know, in Japan, we have tried uh, several times on an uh, you know, individual ID system. We had a uh, you know several times the identified number uh, in the individual. And still, this is well pros and cons. But it's interesting thing is the U.S. has a social security number. Everyone, so everyone has a number. In Japan, we think still many people uh, try not to have it. So they have a fear and objection to be tagged by the unique number. Of course, we do have, everyone have it, but everyone has a unique number by the tax or some other things, but still uh, there's a reaction not to have those uh, numbers. So from an individual point of view, I think there is a beneficial point of view, but also there's a fear for the personal data or privacy uh, they want to protect. It's just uh, still in a in a dilemma uh, in that sense. Yeah. So lack of faith, lack of trust in the overall system, and avoiding Big Brother is a huge barrier to overcome. And uh, think about the future of where this could all go. We've brought up a lot of challenges here. Let's shift to hopeful nature of uh, near-term impact. Another data point that I thought was very interesting about Japan is that. Most of the population is actually very urban or in cities. You know, I think the last stat I saw is it's something like, you know, of the nearly 130 million people, about 115 million people are actually in urban centers or suburbs. So cities tend to be a good cluster for being able to roll out certain categories of digital health interventions. Um, can you tell us what are one or two use cases? where you see the benefits of digital health will be widely adopted by the population in, say, the next three to five years? Where's our hopeful cases? First of all, uh, AI is being embraced by the, the healthcare industry. We started using AI for the many occasions 
we started using this more uh, data analytics or sensor laying, creating more data and gathering data. That's what we are good at it. So IoT is already embedded in our lives. And I don't think it's just a diagnosing. So using the AI power to solve the explosive combination. Because when you come to think about the diagnosis, really many possibility with many, many solutions available. How do they uh, combine these uh, two combinations together? AI could help the doctor's mind to narrow down the possibility and then uh, lead to the right diagnosis. So uh, this is a new movement in these uh, five years, but it's, uh, I think it, we are heading to the right direction. And the AI, I certainly have a high hope in a better service or better diagnosis to live better life. Not only the life span, but also the quality of lives. You know, Japan has the longest lifespan in the world. Maybe because of diet, because of, I don't know, uh, DNA or you know, many reasons, but it's just the QOL is also important. And, and how we could survive with the cancer. Cancer is getting more curable uh, disease. So the question is how we can live uh, after the dread disease. So uh, the AI certainly could give us a more contribution on uh, everyday lives. Yeah, that's one thing that, that can come up with. And other than that, it's just more, you know, devices, uh, Apple Watch, uh, more available and IoT is coming to our lives. So uh, there are many, many possibilities that we could use uh, for the, for the better, better solution. We've talked a lot about a lot of challenges that we've identified that create problems for being able to scale digital health, but there's always hope for the future. So when you look three, five years out, where do you see the best use cases, best adoption for digital health taking hold and having a positive impact? So I think it's, we are getting more complex society and uh, you know new diseases, new normal lives. So uh, what people want the best out of the, the healthcare is uh, more better diagnosis with a you know more efficient process or unlimited situation. So no matter where you are or no matter when. You want to have it. Just the best idea is that you can get it right away, right? So uh, AI is a, is the one thing that uh, could help us uh, having a better and efficient and more accurate, possibly diagnosis, and also the IoT gathering more data to help the AI to collect and analyze the better conclusion. So uh, with these two, I think we are really blessed. With the technology and, and also the new talented folks, most of the AI data scientists, they are 20, 30, they are new grads. And I've seen uh, the sharp new generation folks. They are, you know, more digital native and they think that more different way from the other generation, including myself. But they're more disruptive and very confident in these uh, three to five years, we could have a better AI solution with more robust data sets. Great. Excellent. I'm hopeful for that future as well. I think uh, having better diagnostics, shifting from late stage diagnosis to early stage diagnosis in cancer will be extremely helpful for continuing what is already a lot of people who are living longer in Japan. And uh, with that, we're coming up on time for this episode. Thank you so much, Shige, for sharing your point of view. Really appreciate the time. And you know, we'll look forward to following you and seeing what impact you continue to make at BMS and in the future for your career in uh, making Japan more digital health friendly and having more use cases of success. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. And that's a wrap on this episode. 
You can review the show notes for links to reach Shige and to learn more about his work at BMS. Before I go, here's how you, our audience, can support us. Please share this podcast with others. And if you follow or subscribe, you'll get updates on new episodes and other content. You can also email me at APAC at digitalhealthtoday.com if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes. Through my website, www.toniestrella.com, you can learn more about my fiction writing and my other healthcare work, including my white papers and other podcasts. You can also look for me on Twitter, WeChat, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. And finally, please visit our website at digitalhealthtoday.com to hear other episodes from our other podcasting team and my earlier episodes, including season one. This show was researched and written by Taliosa and produced along with Mission Based Media. The sound and music was by Ivan Yurich. And until next time, I'm Tony Estrella, and thank you for listening. Hey, Dan Kendall here. Thanks for tuning in to Digital Health Today, Asia Pacific Edition. This episode may be over, but there's plenty more where this came from. Just visit our website to find other great shows featuring digital health leaders and innovators. Find us at digitalhealthtoday.com. That's digitalhealthtoday.com.